Well, we particularly thank Gary for dropping in on us. Now, I first met Gary, unbeknown to him, in about 1988 in Waterstone's bookshop. Really? Yeah, and I saw right. this book on the resurrection of a fellow called oh. Flu. <laughs> so I didn't meet you personally as such, although I met enough of you to think, hey, this was terrific. No wonder I didn't remember it. <laughs> so I, he, he was very marked in my mind after reading his debate with Anthony Flew. Uh, it was quite stunning, really, his ability to not only be really clear about the issues, but to really stick Anthony Flew on the issues and to hang in as the debate went on. It was stunning. I don't know whether it's still available in print, is it? But it was a, it was a great oh. read. But uh, various other things have flowed from it. Uh, this one is a conversation uh, with Gary and Anthony Flew because it had a big impact on Anthony Flew. And he was and still an atheist there. He was still an atheist and he was the world's most famous philosophical atheist. Um, and then this book came out, There Is a God, although he never came to understand to be a Christian God. Unless it was in the wee still hours in the morning. Yeah, he yeah. was, you know, alone with the Lord for several weeks while he was sick. And he knew the gospel, yeah. so who knows? But as far as I know, no, you're right. But you, you, you demonstrated, I think, for all of us, the value. That you didn't just have a conversation with him. You stayed with him for, what, 25 years? Of... Tell us a bit about that. Well, uh, just before this first book came out, we, de we debated for the first time in May of um, 87, I think it was. I had just met him because there was a, an amazing set of debates in Dallas, Texas that was called something like Christianity Con Confronts the University. And in one weekend, there were, if you count both single debates and debates, if you just count the people involved, there were 25, 20, 26, you'd have to have an even number, 26 debates in one weekend on the subjects of, is the New Testament reliable? Um, does God exist? The mysterious origins of life or something like that. And the who's who on each side of these things was unbelievable. And on ethics. Where does morality come from? And they didn't just bring all the big-name Christian debaters and left the atheists out in the dark. They had, they had big-name atheists. So, for example, on the debate, does God exist? Um, on the Christian side, they had Alvin Plantinga, um, George Mavrotis from University of Michigan, uh, Bill Alston from Syracuse, a philosopher of science, and a Jesuit, uh, Ralph McInerney from Notre Dame. On the other side was Anthony Flew, Paul Kurtz, uh, Wallace Matson, who had just, he's kind of fallen off the, you know, we don't hear about him so much, but he had just written a book with uh, Cal Berkeley, publisher, and it was Arguments Against God, and he listed a bunch of them. And the fourth one, oh, Kai Nielsen. So those four against those four. I mean, that was massive. And uh, so these debates went on for a weekend, like a Thursday night, all day Friday, all day Saturday, and ended about Sunday noon. And that's where I met Tony. And we got asked by another guy to go out to dinner, and we did. And while we were at dinner, Tony flew. I mean, I just, I just met him, but he was so absent-minded sometimes he wouldn't look where he was walking and he was walking down the he's kind of eccentric and he was walking down the street like his arms were like a windmill and every time I'm with him that's how he talks and he was just walking and he stepped off this curb in downtown Dallas and the other fella and I both put our hands out and did this because of course the traffic's coming the opposite way but he had to know that I mean he knows America and he had been visiting professor several schools, and he was a visiting professor of Canada when all this was going on. He stepped right in front of a car. I mean, he probably would have been killed. And we put our hands up for him and jerked it back up on the curb. Oh, 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 like that. But he didn't miss a beat. He just went right on. <laughs> so we sat down 
at the uh, dinner table, and my friend said, the, the other person said, uh, Tony, what do you think about the resurrection? Now, you could tell from this book, Tony wasn't up on resurrection data, but he was up on miracles. He wasn't just the, well, as this book says, the most notorious, the subtitle, uh, How the Mo World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. Um, yeah, you know, the difference between he and Dawkins is that he was a scholar. I'll just leave it there. Um, but, oh, by the way, they got in a little, while I know Tony, they got in a little spat, Dawkins and Flu. But that's, I'll tell you if you want. But So we were at the table and my friend said, Tony, what do you think about the resurrection? And what I was going to say was, he was an expert on the miracles question. For example, he wrote the article on miracles for the eight-volume Encyclopedia of Philosophy. And they asked an atheist to write the, chapter, the, the, uh, the article on miracles. But in almost every one of his books, um, God and Philosophy is probably his best-known atheist defense. In, the, in his other books, he always had chapters on miracles. So he had thought through miracles very well, just didn't think through the resurrection in particular. But because he'd done all this work on miracles, my friend said, Tony, uh, what do you think about this? Well, I think this or that. Gary, what do you think about that? I don't think that's a very good response because it's not. And so we started going at it over the meal, and Tony was always shy and quiet and laid back. And my friend said, all right, guys, don't, don't have it all out here. I'm wondering, would you two like to debate on the resurrection? I said, I'd be glad to. Tony said, I would too. So, we met in February. In May of that year, he came to Liberty University, stayed for two or three weeks, and we dialogued. Uh, we had a debate that night. It was a two-day debate. And that's the blue book here. So that's how we met him. He was a Civil War buff. He had loved reading about the American Civil War. So while he was there for three weeks, he had the other fellow drive him around to a bunch of Civil War sites. There's more Civil War battles in Virginia than any other state. So Tony wanted to see the battlefields. And they just went from battlefield to battlefield to battlefield, but just a little aside. But um, I'll tell you briefly, a few years later, when he thought he was changing, he wasn't sure, but he thought he was changing to theism. He wrote a letter to Richard Dawkins. And he said, I'm really enamored with some of these, the new science and this and that. What do you think? Now, Tony hand wrote everything. And whenever he made a mistake, he would put white correction tape down the whole letter and write on top of the correction tape. Well, when you correct enough things, six pages of A4 with tape on it got to be kind of heavy. So when his letters came, they felt like a small book, you know, and... So he hand wrote to Richard Dawkins. He gave me the original copies of the letters. So he writes to Dawkins, says, what do I do? Dawkins writes back and says, yeah, don't listen to this stuff. He said, I've got a good buddy who is Roman Catholic and a committed Christian, but he thinks this stuff of you know what becomes fine-tuning or intelligent design or whatever. Dawkins said, yeah, this Catholic guy is a Christian, but he thinks that stuff's garbage. And Tony said, well, okay, let's, let's check this out. But, you know, years later, when Dawkins, uh, what's his main book? The God Delusion. Pardon? The God Delusion. The God Delusion. He's got one footnote on Antony Flew. And he says, Antony Flew used to be a good philosopher. But now he's lost it in his old age. And he can't think straight because he's thinking about God's existence. And so he's no longer a good philosopher. So Tony went off on Dawkins. And from that time on, he gave these open critiques of Dawkins. I mean, one time he was at Westminster um, Chapel with Tom Wright and I. Tom Wright, Tony, and I, Westminster Chapel, you were there. And, and Tony said, he, he, I heard him say this several times, he said, if I were the man, that's the way he talked, if I were the man's dean, pause, I'd fire him. And I'd fire him because he holds the chair of 
Darwinian biology, and he's supposed to be teaching the people, and he's doing nothing of the sort. He doesn't know anything. So he just said he would fire him. He just kept going on and on and saying Dawkins was a dummy. But that's probably because of Dawkins' little cut on him, saying he'd lost, you know, he'd lost all of his clear thinking when he was an atheist. So they went back and forth and back and forth. And anyway, that's that chapter. But uh, we that was 85. 85. I said 87. Um, we dialogued again in 2000. <laughs> and we dialogued for the last time in 2002. And after our last dialogue in 02, uh, he wrote me a long A4 corrective with tape letter. And it was such a strange letter. I went immediately to a professor in my philosophy department right next door. And I said, you have got to read this letter. The man sounds like he's converting to Christianity. And this is O2. And so he's got some one-liners like this. He said, you know, he said, we've talked about the resurrection three times now. Let me tell you my favorite argument for the resurrection. Well, what? Favorite, what's he going to say is the favorite argument for the resurrection? Then he goes on and he talks about how morality was a fair pointer to God, even though he didn't like the moral argument. He started telling me, you know, atheists don't have a, they're not grounded for philosophy, for morality. And then he and I had talked about near-death experiences. And he said, I think that's probably the best evidence for an afterlife I've ever heard. And, you know, long ago he did an argument, he did a book against, on parapsychology. So he's used to some of these odd arguments, but uh, he just thought near-death experiences were a little bit stronger. And, um, and then a one-liner in that letter, as nearly as I can remember, he was, he, two things brought him to theism. One was Aristotle's cosmology, and he said that's number one. And number two was intelligent design. And he started reading intelligent design things. He started reading Dembski. He started reading, oh, Michael Behe. And uh, so on Aristotle, it was the question, why is there something rather than nothing in the universe? Tony thought that was the most compelling reason to affirm God. And then in this book, he adds another reason similarly. He says, if we got here by an explosion, how come the laws of nature are all mathematical and they all work out the right way? Explosions don't do things um, precisely. So why did we, how do we get the laws of nature? But then he wrote me a sentence in that letter about intelligent design and he said, this is pretty close to a quote, he said, as far as I'm concerned, naturalism has not answered a single tenet of intelligent design. I thought, Unbelievable. Favorite argument for the resurrection, morality, near-death experiences, ID, Aristotle's cosmology. Six-page letter, and he just said, I don't know, there's some strange things going on in the world. And he ended it there. Well, a few. this was in the fall uh, of 02. I called him in spring of 03, oh, January. I said, how are you doing? He said, oh, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. And he said, he said, I'm doing pretty well. I've become a theist. Just like that. And I said, what? And he said, I've become a theist. And I said, really? Yeah, 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 I'm a theist. He said, hey, can you call me back in a couple of weeks? He said, I've got a deadline. And uh, he said, I've got a lot of work to do. Uh, can you just call me back in two weeks? And I said, sure. Called him back in two weeks. I said, hey, about this theist stuff. He goes, oh, I'm not a theist anymore. He said, I've been thinking about it, and I'm simply an atheist with big questions. That was an interesting phrase, an atheist with big questions. So then a year later, uh, we talked a fair amount on the phone, but a year later, in, in January of 04, I'd called him another time, and he said, I have become a theist, and this time it's for keeps. And so I was just, you know, and I called Phil Christie, Philosophia Christie, that um, Peter's published in too. And uh, I said, would you guys like an interview? 
from Tony Flew becoming a theist. And, you know, they were overjoyed. So I called him with his permission, taped the whole conversation, had it transcribed. I sent it, I sent it back to him to correct. It got to be about twice the length of the original interview because he added things and subtracted things and so on. And uh, it became called, it became called, it was called My Pilgrimage from Atheism to Theism. And the subtitle was A Conversation with Tony, Anthony Flew and Gary Habermas. Um, in those days, he used the words theism and deism interchangeably. And if you ask him why, he would say, because I fear nobody knows what deism is. So let's say theism. So whatever, it's your call. Yeah, let's go theism. But then later, when people started sounding like they were catching on to what deism was, he started calling it deism. So, but he did an interview with Lee Strobel that's probably still on the website. And Lee took him through the classic attributes of God. And my memory is that Tony affirmed all the omnis. And if you affirm all the omnis, that sounds to me more like theism than it does to deism. So I'm still comfortable calling him a deist, but he didn't care. He didn't care what, what word you used. So that gets you up through 2004 when he announced his... He called it a conversion, but his conversion. And uh, what year did this book come out? Remember? This came out a little bit later, right? Yeah, so eight years ago. This is a great, this is a great book. Very well written. Tell you something about the book too. People claimed that Roy Varghese stole the story here, and he didn't. Um, Put your glasses on. I can't. Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll get it. Oh seven. Oh seven. So this is three years. Thank you. This is three years after he announced his quote unquote conversion. So. Now these issues, uh, they obviously don't just affect intellectuals and philosophers. When I did my searching and questioning initially, I hunted around for a Christian philosopher. And in England we didn't seem to have any who were writing anything that I could understand in my teenage years. Uh, um, yeah. searching. There seemed to be nothing that was really clear. I think things have changed dramatically since then. Oh, Richard Swinburne, for starters. Yeah. But I was talking to a man just last weekend, and he, at the age of 65, I think, has suddenly come alive to Christianity. Uh, his son has just become ordained, and he is all engaged with the subject. And I said, well, what in particular uh, has happened to you? He says, the philosophical arguments for God have just changed everything. He said, I never thought about these things. I've let my whole life go by without ever really trying to work out what were the reasons for the existence of God? So, you know, the trickle-down effects of the sort of work that you've been doing and debating people at a high level. Oh, I thought you meant things like the Kalam argument. Well, yes, I mean, he's seeing all those sort of things. I mean, the, the contribution the philosophers have made, um, and the flu indirectly has made by teasing out and uh, worrying about these things. Yeah, he did some interviews after his conversion, one for Christianity Today, with a Canadian philosopher, and the the fellow was asking him things like, uh, "Who do you think are the best Christian philosophers in the world today?" And he said, "Alvin Plantinga in the U.S., Richard Swinburne in the U.K." And then he said, "Well, what about the best philosopher of this? Or what about the best philosopher of that?" And Tony gave a long line of of names, and. Uh, I mean, th that was very nice, and he, he, mentioned, he mentioned Bill Craig, he mentioned myself actually. The, the one he said about me was, he said, Gary's the guy that puts it all together into a system. He wants to go from resurrection all the way to Christianity's true, and we, he said we need somebody to do more than just one field. So he said that about me, he said God's existence in the Kalam for Bill. Um, he complimented a lot of people, but he just said the same thing. He said Christian philosophy has 
off the charts. In fact, I remember an article in Time Magazine years ago. It's called something like, Philosophy Turns to God. And what it said was, for decades, the sharpest thinkers going to philosophy were atheists. But in the last few decades, the sharpest philosophers going into philosophy are theists. And because they are, the whole field has changed. That was the theme of the article. So, I mean, you think about the big-name guys that are... And they came out of the woodwork because for the longest time, these folks, many of them taught in major private and, and uh, public universities, and they would teach, but they wouldn't identify what their position was. And then when Planiga, Planiga was the force that came out for the Society of Christian Philosophers and gave everybody permission to be outspoken Christian philosophers. We were there for his inaugural presidential lecture for the Society of Christian Philosophers, and he said, he said, we have let liberals and atheists set the pace for far too long. They pick the issues and we respond. He said, we have got to stop. We have to pick the issues and make them respond to us, and we need to start today. And he rallied these guys, and he was such a singular, I mean, he's still alive, but he's retired. He was such a singular, powerful voice. When he debated people, he started going around the country and, I mean, the biggest named atheist, nobody's standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with this guy. He's just a brilliant intellect. And, of course, Richard Swinburne's like that in the U.K., although Richard Swinburne's more into using evidence. Planica doesn't mind evidence. He just, he says we don't need it because God's existence is properly basic, but, but arguments are good, too. And Swinburne's all about the argument. So they were a great one-two punch, the two of them. Can you explain to a lay audience what a properly basic argument for that is? Yeah, Planica's reformed. And because he's reformed in a Calvinistic sense, of course there's different kinds of Calvinists, but he's reformed, and, he, and when he first started in the early 80s, he was saying, we don't need arguments. Arguments are not that good. Um, and it was the census divinitatis from the Book of Romans. All of us are created with the sense of God. And so he would say, that's enough. We all have a pro properly basic. There are some problems in philosophy that are famous for not having conclusions that you can spell out. For example, how do we know there are other minds? How do I know I wasn't created five seconds ago with all my memories of everybody, including all of you? These are famous problems in philosophy. How do we know there are other minds? Um, and philosophers would just say, we, you, there's, there's no tools that will answer these questions. That, they're just famous issues. And Planica said, those things are properly basic. We know there's other minds because we bump into them, and we know this and we know that, and God is one of those things we know that way. So we know God the way we know other minds, and the way we know that I wasn't created 15 seconds ago with all my memories. We just know that. And when he would debate atheists, see, he had published a book in the 60s saying the ontological argument was garbage. But in the 70s, he wrote a very famous, probably the, still the best book on pain and suffering, called God, Freedom, and Evil. It's a brilliant, brilliant little short book. He goes after uh, J.L. Mackey, who was one of the foremost British atheists. And Mackey used to say there was a logical contradiction in the problem of evil. And Planiga, they had, they had a debate. So the biggest, you know, at that time, Flew, Mackey, Ayer, and Russell were the big atheists. Of course, they died off one at a time, and that left Tony as the survivor when everybody said he was the most notorious atheist. And so Mackey kept saying, there's a contradiction. And Planig would say, there's no contradiction. And Mackey said, yes, there is. And Planig said, pray tell, where's the contradiction? And Mackey said, well, tell me what you believe. And Mackey gave him what he called the theistic set. And the theistic set was six propositions. And they went like this. 
God exists, God is all-knowing, God is all-powerful, uh, he's omnibenevolent, and evil exists. He said, I'll give you all those. He said, now, where's the contradiction? And Mackey said, well, there's no contradiction there. And Planica said, exactly. And Mackey said, but we have to add a proposition. And Planica said, like what? And Mackey said, God is always required to do his best. And Platica said, I won't grant that. Because there could be all kinds of reasons God allows evil and suffering. And so the way he cashed this out, Mackey couldn't get close to him and couldn't deal with it. And so Mackey backed off and said, there's no logical contradiction. I concede. There's no logical contradiction. It was a very famous dialogue. And Mackey said, okay, okay, you win. And that. But there's an evidential problem of evil. There's just facts that are disturbing. And one of the famous stories is Bambi, the Bambi thing, because that was an American philosopher who said, how does it work? I forget Bambi. Bambi's mother dies, right? Right, but not Bambi? <coughs> okay, the question was, why should this little, it's animal suffering. And he said, why should this little motherless creature have to live alone in the woods after his mother died because people were playing with matches or whatever? Or was it lightning? Whatever it was, um, it's it was called the Bambi problem. And that's an evidential problem. But Mackey claimed there was a higher level problem, a logical problem. Planica said, that's just a joke. There's none. Mackey admitted it. To this day, there's not thought to be a logical problem. It used to be in the old days that there was a logical problem. Planica blew that one up, and now they debate the evidential problem. But that's an example of Planiga's, you know, sharpness. He was offered chairs, I understand, of philosophy all over the world. Oxford, Cambridge, he's a Yale PhD, but he's offered Harvard everything. He didn't go anywhere because Notre Dame offered him a chair and they gave him a huge amount of money to bring Christian philosophers into Notre Dame and have a Christian philosophy center. And for, I don't know, 30-ish years, he brought the biggest name philosophers in, and they would teach for a semester at Notre Dame. So he had all that power and all the money at his disposal, so he didn't go to Oxford, Cambridge, Yale, Harvard. He stayed in, not that Notre Dame's a lousy school, I mean, it's a good school, but, but uh, he stayed there and did all this. He's retired now. Um, I've been told he's getting close to 80 years old. I, I don't know if he is. He's still a rock climber. He's... He's in good shape, not just in his mind, but in his body. And, uh, boy, we wished he was... We're going to miss him when he's not around anymore because he he turned Christian philosophy around on its head. Now, the sort of issues that are going on in your minds or the people you talk to are probably at a different level, the sort of level that Plantinga would necessarily be addressing. I wonder if you'd like to ask Gary some questions on the things that are, worry you, that you either lose sleep on or you have friends who lose sleep something on. Something that I know mm -hmm. something about. Yeah, Christianity? Mm -hmm. uh, a little bit. Sorry, yeah. can I just, just say, um, what is what would you say the difference between theism, theism, <laughs> theism and uh, Christianity is? Theism is the general belief that there's a God. So in theism, if you're a theistic Buddhist, if you're a Muslim, if you're Jewish, if you're theistic Hindu, however rare they may be, you could all stand shoulder to shoulder on certain issues. For example, I have a magazine in my file cabinet. It was printed by Hari Krishna. And the lead article is a cosmological argument for God's existence by a physicist with a PhD. So in certain what we call natural revelatory topics, general revelation, um, theists can share certain general topics. There's a god, maybe even you can worship God. Now, a pantheist might sit out there and just meditate on, you know, nature, but we might be in a church. But it's still worship. You can pray. There's probably an afterlife. There's morality. Theisms can share that. But Christianity and Judaism and Islam have separate doctrines that we have to if we want people to listen to our 
doctrines beyond the natural, we've got to do our homework. Sir, as far as I know, he never became a Christian. As far as I know, but he knew, he knew the gospel. So, what you know, I, I'll tell you this story. This might tell you, I mean, what's possible. One of my best friends at Liberty, the fellow who hired me, Dave Beck, I called him one morning and I said, "Well, Tony died," and he said, "Well, then this is a good day," and I said, "Dave." And I thought he was saying something stupid like, oh yeah, another atheist less. And he said, that's not what I'm saying. He said, my personal view is, for somebody who knows God, I mean, I mean, they know the answers. They know, I don't mean knows personally, but they know the gospel and so on. But they've never responded. He said, my view is, God comes to them in the wee still hours of the morning and they have one last chance. He says, just my own personal view. He said, but I think they have one last chance, one more chance to come to him. And he said, I just got a feeling, Dave Beck, my friend, he said, I just got a feeling if Tony had one more chance like that, he would have said yes. So that's what he meant by it's a good day, because he was hoping to see Tony in heaven. So the difference is a theist then believes in a God a personal God who has attributes XYZ, but a Christian would be a specific variety of theists that has other doctrines. On a very simple level, Heather and I have been reading through a whole bunch of Psalms the last few days. And one of the things that troubles me greatly is again and again the psalmist says, My God is going to look after, He's going to look after the poor, He looks after weak and the humble, he's coming to my aid, he's overarching, all these great things about him. And I think about people like the poor Pakistani couple, Christians who die in a brick kiln in Lahore, or I think about the people on the border between Kenya and Sudan, Christians who are being taken to slavery into the Middle East, and I think, hang on God, how's this happening? How can the words of David be of any comfort to these people? Good question. Uh, what do you mind to do? Solve that? No, you can't solve it, and I can't. I, I can. He comes again. I can take some stabs at it. Um, Psalms is the book in the Old Testament that makes the most triumphant comments about the goodness of God and how God rescues us. But the other side of that is that Psalms is the Old Testament book that makes the most comments about pain and suffering and things going wrong. Yep. And sometimes they're in the same chapter, right? I mean, if you ever want to read a scary psalm, read Psalm 44. Now, a lot of the psalms that say... We read it say, this morning. Pardon? We read it this morning. It's a rough one, isn't it? See, a lot of the psalms start out with negative news, and by the end of the psalm, they correct it. Psalm 44 doesn't. And Psalm 44 reads like this. Basically, I mean, I'm paraphrasing this in a rough sort of way, but the psalmist is saying, hey, what gives? We've been good servants. We've followed you. We have not broken your law. And have you come back and done nice things for us? No, you've stomped us into the ground. He says, you've killed us all the day long. Now, I'll stop here. Do you know how the prophets of Baal, you know how we laugh and it's not translated correctly, but when the prophets of, when Elijah's is taunting the prophets of Baal, he says, maybe God is on a hunt. The Hebrew is, maybe he's on the toilet. In other words, he's, he's really giving it to him. Well, Psalm 44, the psalmist says, wake up, you who sleep, and come and save us. Now, we could say good theology is, ha, 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 we got him there. We got the psalmist there. God can't sleep. But the thing is, he had that kind of existential pain. So that's there too. Now, in the New Testament, uh, John is the book that has the most one-liners. Whenever you pray in my name, pray, and you'll get it. Three times in John 14 to 16, whatever you ask for, you'll get it. Now, we take those in context and say, well, I'm going to start praying in his name then. Or I'm going to start claiming this because I, I, I'm going to get him to do what he said. But three times in John 14 to 16, it also says you're going to have problems. Go, wait a minute. You're testing this, right? 
Because if we have problems, we can pray about it, and then we won't have problems anymore, right? No, that's not what it says. In fact, it even says in John that people will kill you. Mm -hmm. Hey, wait a minute, that's not fair. You said whatever we ask for, we're going to get it back. No, you're going to die. So how do we reconcile these? I'm just saying they're both sides are there, so there's no easy way out. Now, so I did a book uh, years ago called Why Is God Ignoring Me? And one of the things I did in this book is this count thing. And Psalm has both, many, many, many dozens of examples of both. John has both. But I started asking a second question, because this is the way a lot of people frame the question for me. Why is it, and their question, why is it in New Testament times that God always stepped in and took the believers away from their issues? And today, I can pray till I'm blue in the face, and he never steps in and takes me away from the issues. So I heard that question enough, or some variety of it, that I went through the New Testament, and I counted how many times are Christians in tough situations from which it would be convenient that God would pull them out of it. All right, how many situations are there like that? And how many times does he take them away from it? Answer, almost never. Really? You go, I had this idea that God always rescued him. Almost never. How many do you know? Well, one time I did this in the church, and a lady shot her hand up, and she said, I got one for you. And I said, now look, I didn't say there weren't any. There are a few times where they're rescued, but, you know, what, what's your example? She said, well, in Acts 16, Silas and Paul are in prison. An angel, earthquake, angel door pops open, they come out, the Philippian jailer is going to kill himself. They say, don't do that. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your family will be saved. He takes them home that night, they're all baptized, they lived happily ever after. Great story. She says, see, God got him out of the fix. I said, was that before or after Paul and Silas were whipped? She thought about it and she said, I withdraw my comment. Because they were whipped. I mean, if you were Paul or Silas, what would you think between zero lashes and the first one? What would you think between one and two? What would you think between the second one and the third one? What I mean is, wouldn't you expect God to come along any moment and say, three's enough, and I'll take you out of this, and the lashes keep coming? Paul said three times, I received 40 minus one, 39 lashes. Three times. God didn't step in for any of those. There's almost no times. Jesus goes through eight situations, from what I could tell. Eight situations where it would be real convenient if his father takes him out of it. He took him out one time out of eight, and that's when we're told that Joseph had a dream, took Jesus, went to Egypt. That's sort of a half answer. You say, well, why half answer? Jesus got out free. But how would you have been, how would you like to have been one of those mothers back in Jerusalem whose babies were killed by the soldiers. The rest of them didn't make it out free. And then Jesus is in the garden, sweat drops of blood. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we so flippantly sometimes say, wow, he memorized the Old Testament. Well, yes, he did, but I think we're missing the point. He felt abandoned. And, of course, God didn't take him off the cross. And there's a startling verse in Hebrews 5.8, even the son had to learn obedience by the things he suffered. Now here's my question. If the son of God had to learn obedience by his suffering, why do we think we learn faster than the son of God and we should get off the hook and not have any suffering? Everybody in the New Testament goes through it. Why do we think we should be exempt? That if we think, if we're exempt, we think God's let us down. That's not the way it was in the New Testament. In fact, when people, just the shorthand answer, when someone says, why can't we be like the people in the New Testament? And that's literally the way people say it to me. And I'll say, okay, do you want to be stoned like Stephen, beheaded like James, stoned like the other James, crucified upside down like Peter, beheaded like Paul? I'm, just tell me which one you want. Because God didn't take any of them away from it. So I think I think the question I think your question's tough. I think we've all been there. 
but I think we kind of unbalanced the question in our favor instead of looking at both sides where there's removal but there's also suffering and even the sun wasn't removed. Thank you. I have a real question with regards to the resurrection of Jesus. About the post-mortem appearances, um, I think some people say that it's a hallucination and a lot of people argue against that. But then I think some people argue that there's examples in like parapsychology that people witness like visions that aren't hallucinations or some kind of paranormal phenomenon. Are not hallucinations? Or like okay. some kind of objective paranormal thing. Okay. And they could argue that if this happens regularly, then wouldn't that be more likely than a physical resurrection? How would you respond to that? Okay. That so those are the back the question is about the resurrection appearances. Were they hallucinations? The or the subject or the subjective kind you're yeah, talking like about. So in paranormal, if, if I get the type you're talking about, there's some kind of appearance, maybe of a dead person to a, <coughs> maybe a father dies and he's seen that night by his wife, who's without her husband for the first time in 50 years. But, but you're saying in the cases you're talking about, he's, something objective is going on. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps maybe in a period of time somebody dies and then the father has a vision, then the wife has a vision, and maybe two people have a vision. I don't know if these are common, but I've heard people claim that this just happened. Yeah, actually in one quarter to one third of cases where loved ones dies like, die like that, relatives claim to have seen visions. Now who knows if they're objective, if they claim objective or subjective. But, okay, so, so your question then is what? Couldn't, did you say, couldn't the resurrection appearances be disembodied? Yes, yeah, so somebody could argue that if these things happen in up to a third of cases, without seeing hallucinations, which have their own problems, couldn't, one person could argue that they might have had these paranormal experiences and they had an empty tomb and they put two and two together and came up with the resurrection. So, okay, so if I'm following your view, the resurrection appearance of Jesus could have been about the same thing as other true disembodied paranormal appearances. Yes, I don't believe that. But no, I understand. Okay, let me say something about hallucinations first. Um, I have co-authored a couple of pieces with different healthcare professionals. One, a clinical psychologist, PhD, works in a psychiatric hospital in the States. And he's done a lit review of psychology for the last 25 or 30 years. Another friend of mine's a medical doctor, and he and I co-authored an article for the Irish Theological Quarterly. Um, and he did a lit review of all the medical articles going back 25 or 30 years, and neither one of them found a single instance of a group hallucination. There's none in the literature. You get stories, but that's the problem. They're anecdotal stories. No, no proof or anything. All right, so that's one thing. Yes, group hallucinations have their own problems. And if the tomb was empty, uh, there's a lot of other problems. In fact, I'll just tell you, on my website, GaryHabermas.com, I have an article on hallucinations, and I have 19 critiques divided up into about four different forms of hallucination. Okay, but you weren't going there. I'm just saying there's that and nothing in the literature on group hallucinations, psychological or medical. Okay, this other article is pretty creative, and I actually had a debate, a written debate, with a Unitarian psychologist who argues that exact thesis. And I'll tell you where you can get it, um, or I could send a copy to Peter, and he could send it to any of you who want to write to him. But the key to this one is, it's an objective appearance, but it's bodiless. And the psychologist, the Unitarian psychologist, wanted to argue that Jesus was really raised from the dead. He conceded that. He conceded even, I don't know what he, I didn't ask what he meant by it, but he even conceded that Jesus was divine. But he said, his appearances are not unique. That's what he's questioning. They're not unique because they're like other paranormal, objectively witnessed um, appearances. And he, so he wasn't questioning the resurrection. He was only questioning the uniqueness of it. And if you say Jesus's are like other ones, now you've taken the force away from saying, from our theology that's true by the resurrection. So 
he and I debated in the pages of the uh, Journal of Near-Death Studies, which is the only peer-reviewed near-death journal in the world, and we debated, and I gave several problems that would not be the same for both. One of the ones I really went after, well, well here's, here's a couple problems. Jesus appeared so many different times and for such long periods of time that if you compare it to the paranormal objective examples, there's nothing like it in the paranormal literature. There's nothing like a person appearing a dozen-ish times and from the descriptions, maybe a few hours for some of the appearances. Nothing like that happens. In the paranormal literature, like if a husband appears to a wife after they buried him that day, uh, with the British guy, Reese, the British medical doctor who's done the most work on this, he's done volumes on spouses who claim to have seen their, uh, you know, their, their, I mean, when, when you're with somebody for 40 years, it's kind of bad that, you know, when they're not there at night, you know, and the bed's empty. So there's a lot of data on this. But one problem right off the bat is when when dad comes back to mom, dad's in bodies in the grave, when dad comes back to mom, especially like if she didn't see him, let's say he leaves in the morning, says goodbye, has a car accident, and never get to say goodbye to her. So when they report that he comes back in the room, he says something like, I just want you to know, don't worry about me, I'm okay, I'll be with you someday, I gotta go. Seconds. And she says, no, 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 please don't go, please. He's gone. They're all very, very brief, seconds long, all he wants to do is give her a little bit of comfort. And it's almost like he's got a divine appointment, he can't stay. They all say the same thing, can't stay. All right. Jesus's are many, many appearances over a long period of time, so that's a, that's a real stark difference. All right, here's another difference. In all the literature we have in the New Testament and elsewhere, Jesus' appearances were bodily appearances. Tom Wright has a 700-page book. Bill Craig was in the crowd one time when I said this, and Bill just thought it was funny. He just caught his fancy. I said, I said Tom's got 700 pages on resurrection, and 500 of them are the longest word study ever done in human history. And Bill just thought that was funny. Longest word study ever done. Boy, I never thought about that. You know, and it just, it just hit him funny. But Tom Wright has 550 pages on two Greek words, agnosticus, resurrection, and geru, raised. And he says, no matter who uses these words, no matter, Jews, Christians, pagans, no matter who uses these words up until about 170 A.D. when Gnosticism starts getting popular, until that time, Tom's argument is, a Gnosticism and a Geru are never, ever used of bodiless appearances. They're always used of embodied appearances. So when you use the word, I mean, okay, if you want to say Jesus appeared without a body, if the Bible said, Jesus appeared as a glorified, angelic, disembodied. That's what we'd all be teaching. If that's what the Bible said, we'd be teaching it. We don't teach it because, not because it's a horrible idea. I mean, I'm sure it would be like Plato, right? Plato's idea. And it would be wonderful if that's the Christian truth, but it's not. So Tom says, in a, in a Jewish scholar's use, in a Christian's, in a pagan's, Anybody who uses a Geru or a Gnosticus, it's only and always bodily. It's pretty impressive. Always and only bodily. So if Jesus appeared bodily, that again is hugely different than these other ones. Okay, here's another one. Empty tomb. Uh, a year and a half ago, I gave a paper on 21 arguments for the empty tomb. And they're not like... Here's quoting a verse, here's quoting a verse. They were all critical arguments that critical scholars would allow. 21 arguments for the empty tomb. Here's the problem. If dad appears to mom after 40 years of marriage, if mom is distraught and goes back, this is a silly idea, but if mom goes back to the graveyard and digs up the body that night, dad's body's in the grave, right? We all know that. Dad's body's going to be in the grave. Jesus' body was not in the grave. So whatever happened, happened to Jesus' body, but the empty tomb alone separates Jesus from all the rest of them. Now, this guy's responding to me, 
and I had I had five total critiques, so I made some other ones. And when he came to the empty tomb, the Unitarian psychologist just said, yeah, I don't know what to say. That one is different, but I just don't know what to do about it. And you know in a debate, you can't, you can't let something go like that because you lose the point. And when you lose the point, I mean, that's huge. It was one of the five arguments. And the guy said, I just draw a blank on the empty tomb. But, but if that happened, if the empty tomb for Jesus, uh, that's a huge difference with these paranormal ones. So, And one thing about paranormal ones, many of them are probably hallucinations. When mom's alone in the bedroom and she sees dad, I think mom's probably a pretty good candidate for hallucination. She's alone, she's despairing, she, the bed's empty for the first time in 40 years. It's really, really tough. And uh, I think she's a candidate for hallucination. But we don't have to assume that it has to be that. So, like I said, this Unitarian admitted the resurrection. He said, I've got no problem with the resurrection of Jesus. It's just that it's dis disembodied. And I said, well, it's, that's not going to work. So if you allow a resurrection, but you think it's disembodied, and it's not disembodied, now you've got the full-fledged orthodox view of resurrection. So that's how I ended my article. Anyway, it's in the Journal of Near-Death Studies, and I can send it to you if you want. And if you folks are interested in that, you can all have copies of <coughs> my response, which is to this objection. I'm sorry, sometimes I get long-winded on these questions, but I don't know who's sitting here who says, well, that was a really short answer, but he didn't answer the part of it I had, so I'm trying to cover, you know, the whole range. Good thank enough. you, Gary, very much for coming, and it's much. been great hearing Thank you, you Peter. And very good to renew fellowship with you. Yeah. Thank you, folks. Well, there's no need to rush off. Gary's not rushing up. He's staying around for supper. So if you want to stay and have an atom with him, uh, do so. And, um